Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to You're Making It Worse. I'm Elliot Glazer. I'm Brent Sullivan. And I'm H. Allen Scott. We're here. We're queer. Uh. Meh. Textual healing. Okay, so um, I guess first things first, I wanted to just kind of have um, just a, a little bit of an announcement to our listeners that there have been <clears throat> there have been a number of of sort of disturbing anti-gay news stories that I've read over the last couple weeks um, during this this Pride Month, and including in my hometown in Los Angeles of pride pride flags being slashed and 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 removed from houses and so forth. So I just I I think this is something that everyone listening can and should do, and I'm going to do it with my friends. Alan, I worry a little bit less about you because you're always with Michael and you you guys go out together and you're always together and stuff. Elliot, you know, you're in New York right now. You're sort of gallivanting around town and you're meeting all sorts of gentlemen and so <laughs> forth. But so so just for just for safety and just for right now, during this kind of stressful period, I want you, Elliot, every time you go out to meet a stranger or whatever, I want you to text me, you know, where you're going, who you're meeting, what you're doing, just so I can know where you are. And so I, I, I know that you're safe. Is it, so will, will you at least agree to do that for me, Elliot? <laughs> yes. Okay. Well, I appreciate that. And, and that, that means a lot to me because, oh, sorry, hold on. I just, I just got a text. Um, oh my God. It's from Elliot. <clears throat> I'm meeting a gentleman tonight at 11 PM. Okay. Well, Elliot, thank you so much for letting me know. I appreciate that. And <laughs> I w- I'm going to check in with you later tonight just to make sure that everything is a okay. Oh. Uh, don't check in later. I'm meeting another gentleman <laughs> after that at 2 a.m. Okay. Well, you know what, Elliot? That's I appreciate you letting me know. Um, so you know what? I'll check in with you in the morning so that I know you're safe and sound. And oh my god. Don't check in with me in the morning. I'm getting brunch with a gentleman <laughs> at 10 a.m. Okay, so this is this is a good example where Elliot, uh, I don't need to know if you're getting brunch with someone because that doesn't worry me. You're going to be in public. You're going to be around other people. Brunch is fruit roll-ups in his bedroom. Oh my God. Okay. Here's another one. I'm going to be in the sauna tomorrow from 1 to 4 p.m. All right. Saunas. Yeah, I'd love After to see that, What saunas? Yeah. <laughs> After that, I'm getting tickled behind a dumpster in Tribeca. <laughs> Elliot. And then I'm going to LaGuardia. Okay, well, I didn't know you were I didn't know you were flying home so soon. Oh. No, I once met a baggage handler near runway 2B and we're meeting again in an irrigation ditch. You're unhinged. I want to know how much time you spent writing all of that. Writing, Alan, it just happened. Yeah, yeah. Um, <clears throat> so we do have a fun discussion for this week. Um, sales, as it turns out, this was just reported this week. Sales of LGBTQ plus books have soared to record highs in 2022, even as conservatives sought to ban 
queer-themed titles and attack inclusive education across the country. U.S. readers bought 6.1 million LGBTQ plus fiction titles over the over the past year, ending in May 2023, according to a new report released Tuesday by consumer analyst group Circana. Now, that marks an 11% jump in growth since last year, when around 5 million total units were sold. Um, so this is a pretty significant you know, development. There was a quote from a, a book industry analyst that said, it's important to note that the growth of LGBTQ fi- fiction has outpaced the overall market for fiction sales, including adults, kids, and young adult fiction combined, which remained relatively mm-hmm. flat. Um, I wonder so why. Last... I, I, do you, oh, go ahead. Yeah, oh, I'm sorry. No, I was. I, it's like it's so interesting to think about like analog uh, media, you know, like books, like physical books and vinyl. These, you know, which are both thriving, you know, yeah. it, it, as technology progresses. But like, n- not uh, not necessarily books, but like the idea of LGBTQ fiction books. I think I can. I think I can understand why there is this you know grab for them i mean i guess it just feels like the same thing happening with vinyl signifies that people are yearning for some sort of tactile um like earnest is i don't know if that's the right word earnest um like art consuming experience and i feel like with like queer or lgbtq fiction lgbtq plus fiction it's like it's sort of like a return. It's a return to something of some kind. I don't know. It feels like bespoke to me. Do you mean the physical well, books? I mean, or do you just mean the books in general? I mean both. Like the physical books, even if it's like, I mean, I'm only I'm imagining physical books rather than like um, you know, uh, digital. Uh, yeah. digital books, but ebooks, but like I don't know. It feels like old media, you know, it, it, and having this like sort of old bespoke appeal but maybe i don't know maybe that's i'm out of i'm always surprised i've i've heard regularly over the last you know couple years alan obviously i think you're an expert on this topic but i'm just always surprised that the publishing industry is doing better than ever that you know that that there's there's continued growth and because i i rarely buy books these days well i think i mean yeah it does always surprise me when someone doesn't read um that like it, it it really just in general, even if it's just like you're consuming news or something like to me, that's just as satisfying. But there is I think one of the things that's so interesting about the publishing industry at the book publishing industry is that it saw the writing on the wall very early on with bookstores and with books and they quickly adapted and they recognized the need for for digital books and for audio books and the world in which we can push that and Amazon even though I don't like giving Amazon credit because they did take down a lot of bookstores, they did at least revolutionize how people can experience literature in the 21st century. Mm-hmm. And I think, I, I think that's a, that's a big deal. And that's how, I mean, even with me, like I tend to read all of my books digitally and, and mm-hmm. that is just how I consume. I, I find it to be easier because I love reading on my phone or my iPad or my computer if I'm working on something and I want to take a break. And it just it doesn't surprise me but this in particular what's so interesting about this is across the country there are a lot of they won't call them book bans the people who are actually banning the books they won't actually yeah. call them book bans but there's like a case of like for example Amanda Gorman who so eloquently gave the the poet at or the poem at Joe Biden's um inauguration her book was banned from a Florida school district just because two parents objected to it and they had never read the book oh, first off it was a, it was her it was her poem they had never read the book and their reasoning is because it celebrates her blackness and her blackness as an as a black american it has nothing to do it's not controversial in any way shape or form but it was just because of two parents who objected to it and now hundreds thousands of kids in that school district won't be able to access a poem by I don't know if she is the poet lord or she will be the future poet lord or whatever she is, whatever she will do in the future, which she's talked about wanting to go in public office. Those kids won't have early access to her early work because of that. So I do think that a big response to this is that there is a lot of fear in the country now about sort of like the books that our kids are reading in schools and all of these things. And parents, hopefully progressive parents or parents like my parents are just like, 
Just go read whatever you want. Just be excited about reading. That's what it should come down to. It doesn't matter what the book is. Just be excited about fucking reading. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So why do you think there's this surge? Do you think there's a genuine interest in LGBTQ plus books all of a sudden? Or is it just a counter uh, um, um, protest to these book bans across the country? I think it's a mix of both, but I think it's more <clears throat> that there is a sort of like how the publishing industry recognized they needed to advance. I think the publishing industry also recognized that readers, people who read a lot, are very much open to niche books, to niche stories, to different kinds of stories. And there and niche markets actually can be profitable markets for people. And so mm-hmm. I think the publishing industry has put a lot of money and effort in terms of publishing queer authors and queer stories and marginalized stories in general. There needs to be a lot more of it. But there definitely has been an emphasis on that. And I think that has a lot to do with the rise in LGBTQ plus fiction sales soaring that the publishing industry is doing what a lot of companies should do by recognizing we should appeal to all markets and have, I mean, just like we should have queer books. We should also have Colleen Hoover out there who's writing a million and a half books. And she's on every single like display section in every single bookstore you go to, but she's just sort of like a straight white woman from the South. And it's How just, dare she? But there's like there's a whole spectrum <laughs> of books being published that I think is really really great, and I think that speaks to the the rise in sales. So I guess we have learned uh, for the first time. Alan is a fan of Colleen Hoover. No, no idea who that is. Uh, <laughs> oh well, you you should know who she is because she's basically like the the Stephen King or the I mean she is literally it is insane. If you go wow. on the New York Times bestsellers list and you see for fiction and you see how many of her books are on that fucking list. It is wow. insane. This woman pumps out books like like their kids, like every nine months, <laughs> new book, and people eat them up. I mean, there's a great New York Times story on her where it just sort of, she kind of just started doing this and she became literally the international best-selling author. Like, it's insane. Wow, how huge. interesting. Yeah. So there was, there was one other thing, so... Um, obviously we, I think we, I believe we talked about this, maybe not, but last month, the Texas legislature passed a bill that would require publishers to place ratings on books based on quote, sexual activity. Now, uh, I also saw this, this headline and I find this actually very interesting. In contrast, one Utah parent has submitted a complaint requesting that the Christian Bible be banned from schools as it repeatedly violates the state's statute against quote, sensitive materials. Now, obviously, I don't think that's going to go the way that I would like it to in Utah, but you never know. Uh, the Bible is pretty violent, and there's yeah. some pretty – I haven't read it, but there's some pretty crazy shit in there. So I'm I'm definitely curious to see uh, what object, supposedly objective judges might, might have to say about um, whether the Bible violates uh, certain um, sensitive material standards that they've created or, or in Utah. I just remember, I just remember when I was a kid, I had this teacher, his name was Mr. Parsons, and he was, I I learned later that he was gay. And, uh, and I would read, I was always reading like adult books and comedy books. And I was reading like Jerry Seinfeld's book. And I remember I came in one day with Tim Allen's book. And I had like left it out. I don't know why I, I was, I loved home improvement. So I was reading Tim Allen's book. Right. And I thought it was really funny. But then Mr. Parsons read it and was like, you probably shouldn't be reading this. And so I read it at home instead of at school because apparently it was, I mean, it was really raunchy, but still. Oh, was it? Wasn't, oh, it, wasn't it called, uh, I remember, don't Don't stand too close to a naked man? Yeah, something like that, yeah. And, and Oh, boy. I mean, his comedy <laughs> has always been kind of raunchy. The whole home improvement thing was just sort of like a like a lark in a way. It was sort of not his normal. Yeah. I never connected with that show. I did. I was so attracted with, attracted to JTT, of course. Like I think everyone, every gay kid my age. Um, but I, that show was just unwatchable and so really, not even though it took funny. place in Michigan. Oh, I loved yeah, it. Yeah, it was. I mean, Tim Allen is like the big success story from Michigan comedy, and like, yeah, he would still sh- drop by every once in a while. I I never met him, but he would come back and do shows at the uh, Comedy Castle and in metropolitan Detroit, but I just was like, that show just was, I just hated um, like network sitcoms that had like out of a 21 minute show, five of those minutes had to be 
heartwarming, you know, discussions between characters about how much they love each other or whatever. Yeah. I just yeah, like, that was shit like that. Just that like that was ABC though. It was part yeah, of yeah, that was ABC Family. Like if that's sort of era. what ABC would do. Yeah, NBC didn't really do that, but ABC definitely did. Yeah. Although NBC did like they, I mean, there was always that bizarre '90s trope of like, ah, oh, like ah, I'm like ooh. And yeah, I hate that shit <laughs> yeah, right. so much. Give me an example. I don't know what you're talking about. Just like when characters would, it was on the Golden Girls too. When yeah. the gold, when the characters would kiss, and the audience would go, Ooh. <laughs> I hated it. Really? I, it. I still hate it. Yeah, and they, yeah. like, even on the last show that I was on, they they were like, we well, we're gonna add some kiss, some like woo, and I was like, why? Why are we adding woo? We don't even have an audience, but it's like, I don't know. If I saw you across the bar smooching with someone, I guarantee you, I'm going to go to Brent and go, (laughs) (laughs) smooching. Uh Oh, oh, that hoe, she only smooches tootie hoes. Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Not even joking. We are here today with one of my good friends who I have this. I want to talk to you about this. Lewis Peitzman. Hello, Lewis. Hello. <laughs> okay, Lewis. Hello. I was going to say hey, before Lewis. we even started recording that, like, we were just saying how we haven't, I haven't seen you in a long time. None of us have really, we've all, you haven't seen a lot of us in a lot of different ways, right? Mm-hmm. Yes, that's correct. And it always kind of, whenever I see someone for the first time post COVID, like who I didn't see at all during all of COVID, I'm a little, my first prompt is to always be like, you made it out. Yeah. Which, I, I, I mean, I did. So I feel like <laughs> yeah. that's, a, that's a great way of looking at it. Here we are. <laughs> How are you? I'm so good. I actually, I have heartburn right now, but I feel oh, like no. that's just kind of a default state. Yeah. Heart, heartburn, <laughs> I had never had it before. And, yeah. and I think I've only had it maybe three times in my life. But when I get it, it fucking sucks. It is really bad. Pretty Dude, bad. Pepsid, I also feel Pepsid? like I have I I I've been chewing nauseine. Have you ever had nauseine? They're oh, delicious. No. And it's a nausea medication, but it helps with heartburn. Um, I do worry that like when I have a cardiac event at some point, I'm not gonna know because yeah. I'm now I always think I used to think that I was dying and then it was heartburn. <clears throat> but now when yeah. I am dying, it's gonna be like a boy who cried wolf <laughs> thing. I've right. had it too, where like Sometimes I'll think I'm dying and it's really just indigestion. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> just like I'll think, like, oh my God, this is the heart attack. Like, I can't, this is the moment my chest feels heavy. And then I'll do a nice burp and it'll be like, oh, I'm going to live. Right. Yeah. But I don't think I, I don't really, I, I guess I wouldn't want to know if they could reverse it, sure. But like, if I were actually dying, I'd probably be, be fine thinking it was heartburn until you know, <laughs> until the bitter end until, until the end yeah exactly right well i understand I, why you can feel like you know if your body is feeling you know ab- abnormal you know non-routine sensations it's like it is pretty jarring yeah of course i mean i think lewis and i probably have this in common i know we have because i feel like we've talked about it that i do always feel like i'm dying of something like i do feel like the end is near pretty much weekly do you know what i mean yeah, I, I assume that that's everyone's experience. It isn't. I guess it's, Lewis, it's, it's, it's not, not. It's not, it's but not. it feels like it. It's feel, <laughs> I, I was raised among Jews, so I feel like that was sort of like the ethos that I was, I don't know, that, that seems natural to me. Yeah. It is my, very yeah, stereotypically Jewish. My mom is obsessed with, with illness and ailments and the macabre, and she doesn't even under, doesn't even realize it, even when I point it out. I'm like, oh my God, like she just looks at, at people as like, as like um pl- cemetery plots and inheritance you know it's like it's just the most the most yeah. macabre like oh my god yes yeah, it's, it's all about illness and ailments and i i often say that she and my aunt are in like the ailment olympics to see who's like suffering the most oh yeah, yeah. i mean well that's the thing you call your parents and they either talk about the weather or what they're dying from like those are the two <laughs> those are the only two updates i get now oh. 
I got today I called I called my dad because for Father's Day and I I found out that they their water bill was higher than usual and they fixed their oven. So okay. I, I did I got those updates. Wow. Wow. Um, in a, in like a, in like a staggering amount of detail. Yeah. Um I have so I, I won't I won't share this. It's not my short story to share, but otherwise I would pass it along to you. I had a similar conversation with my mom where she said the power was out, but she was able to answer the phone, which is like one of those like landline. It's like a, you know, like a, not a cell phone, but it's like a regular landline phone, but that has to be plugged in. So I was like, oh. well, how is that working, mom? And then she was like, oh, then I'm going to go do laundry. I'm like, mom, you need electricity to do laundry. Like it's plugged into something. And she's like, oh, well, no, only the TV's out. Okay. <laughs> Wait, no, that's not a... <laughs> so you don't have a power outage. You just don't oh have my cable God. right now. That is so funny. Yeah. That yeah. is really cute. I um, love that. Something. But it was all because of a storm. So technically it was related to weather. Oh. Yes. Right. Yes. Yes. But Lewis, you, I met you here in Los Angeles. You are an Angelino native. Is that right? Am I right in saying that? You are right. Yes. It is so rare in Los Angeles to meet someone who was born and raised here, but it is not rare for someone like you to get the hell out of here who is born and raised here, which you did. You now live in New York City, right? Yes. What what was it like like growing up in Los Angeles? Um I mean I feel like I just watched uh Poison Ivy recently for the first time and I think that captured it pretty well. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um the Sarah Gilbert like... Drew Barrymore film, right? Is that Correct. Yes, yeah. yes. Yeah. Uh, I love that you said Sarah Gilbert first. No one is like that's a Sarah Gilbert movie, but it is <laughs> Sarah Gilbert. Sarah Gilbert is now more relevant because Elisa Silverstone or not Drew Bar- No, sorry. I confuse Elisa Silverstone and Drew Barrymore in that movie all the time. I don't know why. Because they were both making like Killer Lolita movies in the yes. 90s. Yes, so, you're right. Uh same vibes. Uh no, I think it. I don't know. My I feel like my earliest memories are like OJ trial related. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think a lot of it just has to do with like when you grew up in LA. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I don't know. Weird place. I I definitely like think that I will at some point end up back there if only mm-hmm. because I'm an only child and my parents are older and at some point I'll have to like do something about that. Yeah. Um, and so I I kind of. So I, I think I'm like making peace with it every day. I will eventually come back. Although they live in Studio City now, which is like so different from where'd you grow up? I grew up, with. I grew up in Beverly Hills. Oh wow. Oh, wow. And then yeah. and then I'm when I moved by then I went to college. And then when I moved back, I moved to uh to Los Feliz. Yeah. So- I, you, I, wait, you threw this out real quick and I just have to throw the story because this is I've lived in the I've lived downtown Los Angeles now for for many years. And I was in an Uber recently driving past a knife store, a very famous knife store that I live very close to. The famous knife store? Well, there's a knife store that, yeah, they sell. They have like literally thousands of knives. I think a knife store could be famous anyway. Sorry. Well, and the other thing was as we drove by, the Uber driver was like, that's where OJ bought the knife. (laughs) And I was like, okay. Well, that was like so excited about it. I was like, all right. That was, I mean, if you were in LA, it like around that trial and when all that happened, like everyone knew someone connected to that trial because there were so many people involved and it went on forever. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think knife stores can be famous outside of that, but I, I <laughs> definitely gives it an extra, an extra pull for an tourists. Extra boost. Yeah. yeah. How are you liking New York city? Cause I know you're a big Broadway person. Yeah. I basically moved here for theater cause I was going to write about theater and then found out that you can't make a living writing about theater. I <laughs> yeah. was like, I moved here and like when I was working for Buzzfeed and they were like, you can write about theater. And I did that for a while. And they were like, well, no one's reading this. No one cares. <laughs> so it's like, stop doing that. So I probably didn't need to move here. But um, I'm much happier now than I was in 2020. Okay. Which was a real, a real dark time for me specifically. Um, but I was living in the studio, which was like, I lived in the studio for six years. And I lived in a studio in 2020, um, which was like one of my worst choices I guess not having moved before then was one of my worst choices. I couldn't have known, but I should have known. Yeah. Um, and then my therapist was like, I should never tell, I never tell clients to like do something like this, but you have to move. You should actually, I'm going to give you advice to move. Um, oh, wow. And I, and I did. And um, it's much better now. 
I much was, wait, why were you so like, was it just the isolation all of a sudden? Oh my God. It, yeah. It was just, I, I, first of all, for that time, I like lived and worked in my bed, which was not yeah. good. Um, developed like horrible back problems. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I was just like, really, it was not, it was not cute. It was also like a furnished apartment, which was great when I moved here. But then after a while, you start to feel like you don't have anything because I didn't yeah. own any furniture. And I felt like I was like, I don't know, I was like in my 30s, but felt like I was spiritually like 22 yeah, post college. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so that was that was that was rough. But uh, great COVID deals happened. And like, <laughs> right. and like, I moved here in I moved to my new apartment in um early 2021. And uh, there were some really, really good COVID deals. And I was like, got to find a rent stabilized place because everything's going to get jacked up yeah. insanely. Um, so, yeah, now I can never leave. And that's I mean, Do I, we got a when, when I moved during the, the pandemic, my boyfriend and I, we got a we got like a COVID deal, basically. And we just we're now we're never leaving because it's like we're locked into this great two bedroom, two bathroom. <laughs> like, yeah, not gonna only leave. I think 6200 or something. So now that Broadway is open again, Lewis, uh, are you going to shows a lot? Is there anything like you need to talk or vent about Broadway wise? Any shows you want to? Oh get my god, Tony Awards! I feel like I, I honestly feel like I should only be positive about Broadway because it's like, you know, horribly ever since COVID, and I think before to some extent, like it's not been going well in a in a broader sense, and I always sure. feel like I don't want it to go away completely. Um, so. I do, I do see a lot. I, I, I'm in the outer critic circle. So even though I'm not writing about theater as much, I see everything and I vote on it once a year, oh. um, which is exciting because I like voting for things. Um, <laughs> well, you did work at BuzzFeed. There were a lot of polls on BuzzFeed. I love, right. yeah, I love poll. I love a poll. I love a quiz. I love to vote <laughs> on things. Um, so yeah, I do, I do see a lot. I think that um, definitely during COVID the first year I felt so depressed because I wasn't seeing theater and my entire life was like seeing a show every night because I because yeah. of comps not because I spend it's like so expensive to see theater but oh I would like God, go yeah. I would like go see a show every night and that was my entire life and I would like go with friends and yeah. um and then that went away and I was like very destabilized and then I thought during that time like when theater comes back I'm going to see every goddamn show I yeah. feel so excited about it and feel so like lucky to do that yeah. and then that lasted like maybe three weeks yeah and i was like i actually like don't like a lot of this i don't like a lot of what i see um i feel very like uninspired by a lot and i i were you not inspired by mrs doubtfire the musical <laughs> well okay so i i ended up not seeing it which was like, another oh. thing about which was another <clears throat> thing about kind of when things came back it was like things came back and i did try to see everything but like i was still mentally in a place where like you know flirting with agoraphobia which i think is like very of the moment yeah. um we're like we're like very going to that. anything is like actually very hard for me still and um and then because because of like all the various waves it was like theater was back but then like shows were constantly canceling and, yeah and yeah. so like and for me, because I get voter tickets, if like one of the principals is out of a show, they'll cancel the tickets because they want you to see the full cast so you can like vote on the acting awards. Oh. So a lot of times I'll like have a show that night and I'll get an email being like, you know, this is canceled, which obviously is great because like everyone loves a cancellation that's not their fault. Yes. Um, but it makes it it makes it like hard to see things. And I'm already kind of like fighting against being on the couch so um i miss i miss that i miss that one i miss mrs doubtfire you know covid definitely did that i think for a lot of people it just kind of rubbed the veneer off of the things that we loved and appreciated before and kind of forced us to you know um use use different uh you know you're hungry you know, elliot yeah view view <laughs> these things with a different lens <clears throat> and so I, I can imagine that that was pretty upsetting to be in New York. You're here for, you're there because you love Broadway and all of a yeah, sudden. It's a new it. city for you. Well, well yeah. new, you had been well, there for a while. Yeah, you've been there for a but while. Still, but still, I mean, you're in New York. It's exciting. This is what you want to be doing. And then all of a sudden this pandemic comes and fucks up how you even look at life in New York City. Yeah. Right. Well, and also now I live like next to Times Square. So I think any joy that I still felt is long gone. Yeah. Um, but it's so convenient. It's so convenient. Like anytime I'm like 
feeling bad about the fact that I have to walk through Times Square, I think about all the trains that come there and how it's it's midtown. It's the middle of the town. You know, it's just like yeah. you can't really yeah. get more central. Yeah, so, I, mean, I, actually, I never got why everyone. Oh, sorry. I used to work in Midtown and I got why everyone hates uh, <laughs> Square. I definitely get that. But I also kind of loved it. I don't know if I would like it now because I was in New York, you know, this is pre 2012. So like a lot of it was a lot different and it wasn't at, even though it was very much corporate at that point, it wasn't it still had like a regular New York feel to it, you know, whereas now even on Broadway, like there's I mean, what interview I was just reading that someone was talking about how like there really are I think it was Patty Lapone there are no original ideas on Broadway right and it's all just sort of like either movie remakes or like Disney shows or whatever well, there's that there's shocked which I was like there's a show about corn it definitely that's is cool. about corn yeah that's cool I mean I was like that's that's but you know Shuck, different Shuck started its life as Hee Haw the musical this is uh, true okay it was a musical adaptation of the show Hee Haw that became shocked. Oh, oh wow! Um, but it's a it's an, like it's an original show. It's not actually that was just like the origin story of that music. Right. Wow. And so, what do you think is the state of Broadway? Do you agree that it is in sort of like it's hemorrhaging a little bit in terms of these mega musicals that people can't afford to go see them and stuff? Yeah, it's like definitely a mess. I mean, I think that the Tonys were actually very. I don't know. I th- like I really enjoyed the Tonys this year, and I think that like. Um, Kimberly Akimbo is like my favorite show on Broadway right now. I've seen it several times. I think it's amazing. It's an original show. I mean, it's based on a play, written, you know, but from What's 20 it a, years ago. What is it about? A Kimberly Akimbo? It's about um, a 16-year-old girl who has a genetic disorder where she ages faster. It's like the movie Jack, but it's oh. it's good and it's a musical and it's oh, about her. Oh, wow. um, uh, yeah, it, it, it's really, it really is very good. And, so so um, e- even when she's like 13, she's played by Diane Weist or something? <laughs> yes. Right. So she's you only see her as a 16-year-old played by Victoria Clark, who won a Tony for it. <gasps> um, Wait, I actually, I love her. You should, it, if you can like see it, it's like a, it's a fantastic <clears throat> show. I think the problem okay. is that like part of the reason why like they were fighting so hard to have the Tonys is because like all of these shows are at, at risk of closing. Like nothing yeah. is doing that well. Mm. And what happens with that is it's like a domino effect where, you know, people start to feel like every show is going to lose money. Like everything's a risk. What am I going to invest money in? You know, most shows lose money, like even before pre pandemic. And so you get these shows that are like IP, you get things that are like safe bets or feel like safe bets. Mm, and often, yeah. yes. And they often flop anyway, but I think in people's mind, they're like, we can't take a risk on this. So you'll see, like, I think a lot of, a lot more risk taking happens in the plays because plays oh, yeah. cost a lot less. Yeah. And uh, like strange, you know, you, isn't, there, isn't there where the crux, the crux of like, I mean, yes, you're going to like pe- people and feels like tourists are the ones who are going to pour money into like, you know, uh, 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 I don't know, a kindergarten cop, the musical or whatever, but like would see real, that. Absolutely. I would. <laughs> like, but like real people and like patrons of the arts, are going to continue to see plays. Yeah, I mean, I think that it's it's complicated. I mean, like, the thing about tourism is that it does keep these shows running. So you have things right. like it's... Phantom, which should, like, never have died, you know, but, but did because, like, there weren't enough tourists. And then mm-hmm. I think, like, in terms of, like, the patrons, I don't know, a lot of them died. I think a lot of them moved to Florida. And yeah. the ones who didn't yeah. probably died. Like, not to be grim about it, but you think about, like, who those audiences were. Of and course. it's like... The changes in the yeah. demographics, too. I mean, you look at someone like I, I think of Rosie O'Donnell's childhood where she talked about her going to Broadway coming from Long Island. And there's just not not a lot of Long Islanders who are coming in on the train to go see Broadway right now. It just for the past. Is, 20, that, is that true? It just well, I mean, it's it's also just gotten so insanely expensive, like yeah. as bad as it was before. It's just gets worse and worse. Like I every once in a while, I mean, I get comps, so I usually don't pay full price which is great because it's very expensive but like i'll look i did go to see kimberly akimbo the first performance after the tonys and that's not even one of the more expensive shows mm-hmm. and like to get like i was looking at like front of mez like just to see like what that would cost and it was like 250 dollars oh, for Jesus. front of mez those are premium I... seats now and there are seats for like 400 dollars and 500 dollars. i mean hamilton really i can't blame oh everything God. on hamilton but a lot of it was like people are willing to pay yeah. these like 
insane prices and like resale prices and all of that. But like the days of being able to like get an affordable seat somewhere in the back of the theater for a lot of shows are just totally gone. You can't do that at all. And it makes it so young people don't go see theater. People don't really like come in from Long Island as much. I'm sure just because like, yeah, it's, it's, it's a, it's expensive to do. And then to get a ticket to these shows, it's like very, very expensive. I had, I had no idea. I had no idea it was so expensive because that's for a family of four. That's a thousand dollars for two hours of, you know, what I would argue garbage entertainment. And, (laughs) um, you know, that is, I mean, look, that might be what Elliot spends. Lewis, Lewis describes this, like, lovely show. Brent calls it garbage. That's <laughs> fine. It's not, it, theater's not for everyone. Musicals aren't for everyone. But, but um, I, I don't want it to disappear. I, I want the industry no, to I, exist. No, I, I think and there's people who keep working on things that they can do to make theater, to make tickets more affordable, to make things more equitable. And like the hard thing is that like everything is so expensive right now and the rent is so expensive. It's like you have these, you have these shows where like a producer will set aside a certain number of tickets for students or for people of color or for like underserved communities or whatever it is. And then it's like, you look at the box office grosses and those shows are like hemorrhaging money because like, I don't get how they will sustain. I mean, I, I think of my own, you know, as a, Long, kid from Long Island and then an NYU student it's like all the shows I saw were at the were on the TKTS line or whatever yeah, at student right. student prices and it's like how does how does the ticket price go up and the lotteries fade away if these producers plan to keep this old you know medium alive and there are there are still lotteries and there's still rush and all of that and like obviously those are still some great deals although like I feel like a lot of lotteries now it's like still $40 or yeah. like $50, which is like not really something that everyone can afford to do, especially if you want to buy yeah. more than one ticket. It's not Wait, like yeah. $10 rush. Can, can I ask real quick, what was sort of the impetus behind this shift? Because I don't remember hearing this complaint when I lived in New York 15 years ago. Oh. So was there some sort of seismic shift in the industry? Um, what what precipitated well, this? Go ahead, Lewis. Well, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm definitely not an expert in the economics of theater um i find it really boring to talk about i i don't know anything about money i i'm terrible with money so well welcome um, to elliot glazer's world yeah <laughs> i mean there I, was, no, I, go ahead no i mean if you have an answer you should answer because well, i'm just was, gonna be there was know. sort of a shift so there was this like you look at it like bloomberg into um who was the mayor after bloomberg why am i blanking on his name de blasio de blasio and the shift in the dynamics of the sort of corporate infrastructure of new york city in and of itself so the the rent went up in the years that de Blasio was actually in office post Bloomberg. And so the rent was sort of the early catalyst that a lot of times the only companies that could afford to rent the space were like the Disney companies or the big massive companies. So you started seeing like Adam's Family the musical, Mrs. Doubtfire the musical, all these different musicals. And sure, it brought tourists in, but then all these other sideshows weren't. So like when I was there, I like the most I ever paid for a ticket was I think $150 and that was to see Patty Lapone in Gypsy. Like that was the most <laughs> I was going to pay. And now that ticket and she even talked about this. Now that ticket would be $400 for me to see that show. Oh. It was such a it was such a event to see her in Gypsy and it's all because of not just the rent. That's a big part of it, but like the rent was a huge part of it and the changing dynamics of New York City and it just it kind of fucked over everyone and and that working class people can't come in they either can't afford to come in to see the shows or they're just not appealing to them and it's 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 sort of like a lot of little things started this thing so they just started putting out these like what lewis said all these the original i or the existing ips i think i mean rent is definitely a big part of it and i think also it's just kind of greed because if you find out that people are willing to pay that much, then you're going to start asking for that much. So I think that like, once you start charging $500 for a ticket to Hamilton, you kind of like pop that cherry and now you can charge that much for other shows. Maybe what would help is if maybe we, you know, got contact information for a lot of these Broadway theater owners (laughs) and sent them a video of me saying, I'm not going to pay that much. I would pay $10 (laughs) to go if you're fucking lucky. And maybe that could kind of, sort of deflate the price of these Wait, tickets. I don't know. It can hurt. I mean, that's like, I have to not a bad idea. Because we don't have much more time, but I have to ask you about your, you had a podcast about Smash. You were obsessed with the show. Yes. Smash. I, and now there's a musical, it's, right? There's going to be a musical on Broadway about, about the musical, Smash. About your podcast? About, I wish. I wish. But no, they haven't consulted me at all. 
<laughs> what was it about? Because I, I always, I was obsessed with your obsession of Smash, but I was not actually obsessed with Smash. Even as a musical theater fan, it was never my thing. What was it about Smash? I don't know. I just like things that are terrible, and I think like, <laughs> but but I mean, I like things that are bad in like an interesting way, and I feel like that was a show that like there was that period. It was 2012, right? Like I remember going to like yeah, it was 2012. Parties. I just looked it up. I remember going to people's like parties, and you would like stand around talking to people about Smash. Yeah. and how little sense it made yeah. and i feel like it was just a really it was a moment in time yeah and like remember network tv like there was there was so much you know they get angelica houston to star in this fucking show she sang a song i mean like it's just um we don't we don't really have that anymore i don't know it was it was very special to me and i think but the podcast was also because <laughs> i wanted a podcast and then i thought of the title first and kind of worked backwards <laughs> I called it after smash after the show after match which is the the match like follow-up series um <laughs> and sometimes you just kind of have to like go with a dumb pun and <laughs> of um, course see what happens oh. smash smash is sort of the the quintessential example of the industry t- trying too hard because i think glee um uh, predated smash and it was big and i remember hearing stories that there was this entertainment executive who was all over, he was like, Smash is gonna be the biggest hit we've ever made and <laughs> everything goes through me. So I heard like, you know, obviously this is very atypical for the industry. He was approving outfits and costumes and casting and all that shit. And of course it was a monumental flop. And it just goes to show like you can be the CEO of an entertainment you know, company and still have no fucking idea. I find that hard to believe, but I'll I'll, I'll take take your word for it. Would you say Steven Spielberg produce it? Wasn't that a yes? And he was heavily involved as well. That's a lot of a lot of opinions. The big the big thing about Spielberg was that he was obsessed with. He was like convinced that Cat McPhee was the star, (laughs) and that Megan Hilty was like lesser, and so he was the one pushing Cat McPhee to be like the face of Smash. And look at her now. Yeah, she's well, like she's a you know an iconic Republican, married yeah. to a geriatric uh, man, who- <laughs> married to the ex husband of of Yolanda. Uh-huh. Yes, yeah, yeah. Uh, that's I mean it is, and also the fact that like any, if you're wanting a musical theater audience, the, the musical theater audience isn't going to care about Catherine McPhee. They're going to care about the woman who's actually been on Broadway. I did go see her in Waitress, so I'm part of the problem. I obviously <laughs> did at one point care about Captain McPhee, and that's on me, and I have to live with that. I never will. I love whenever they do talk show, her and her husband ever do talk show appearances together, and she just looks completely lost. She looks like I, Katie Hall yeah. Tom Cruise. Like, you don't know what she's there. I interviewed her once, and, like, I remember that I had, like, an hour with her, which was crazy because she does not need an hour, but, like, <laughs> like... 45 minutes in this like light came on behind her eyes and she asked me how I was. And it was like, she'd been like on autopilot for the first 45 minutes. And then suddenly was like, remembered she was a human being. It was really oh kind of God. eerie. She's our that first so AI funny. actor. And I think we should gonna... respect that. <laughs> I was going to say, she's like so a Cylon. Funny. Like she got, mm-hmm. she got, was, she was rebooted. I mean, whatever. I supported her. And now when her money helps fund like anti-gay policies, I have to live with the consequences. That's right. We all do our little things. <laughs> well, Lewis, thank you so much for joining us. Where can people find you on the internet? Uh, you can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd and Instagram, I guess, all at Lewis Peitzman. Yes. There we go. Love you. Thanks Lewis. so much. And another thing. So uh, Pat Sajak announced that he is retiring from Wheel of Fortune. Thank God. What uh, a Republican fuck. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, he is he is a he is he is he's gross he's really right gross. wing right he's also just, he's just bored with the job he's over it you know what were you gonna say elliot sorry apparently howard stern was on like in like 97 maybe to promote his book i think or the movie and literally pat sajak ran off set so that he didn't have to face engage or acknowledge <laughs> really and so Van, vanna shot the segment with howard on her own oh wow oh wow yeah vanna's yeah. cool Vanna's actually cool. Yeah, yeah. Vanna's, Vanna's, a Dem- cool. Vanna's a Democrat. Vanna's a Democrat. That's well established. Uh, listen, I here's the thing. I mean, I, this is like, I mean, it's so strange and 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 just still bizarre how how big the story became about like who will replace Alex Trebek. Yet I understand why in that I still have no interest in watching the show without him as the as the game show host. You know, I oh. I, I, I he just has a certain tenor and 
that like worked for the show. I have no interest in watching Blossom do it or whatever. But now with Pat Sajak, having been on the show and having watched the show for a long time and being a fan of the show. And like, I, I have, I mean, it is just so funny when you say having been on the show when you were like eight and to eight, me, 12. To me, I'm like, for most people who reference certain things, they don't reference eight year old experiences, but please, <laughs> having yeah. been on the well, show. I mean, was, I was on Wheel of Fortune. Somebody. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. I was on Wheel of Fortune. I've tried to get back on. They will not let me back on. Um, I, you know, I, I would, sl- I know I would slay. I just, I just know it. And don't say that so, again. <laughs> I, I would slay the game truly oh my god but like fuck i mean whatever fuck them they won't let me back yeah. on i've tried yeah. you're bitter but i do not i do think that pat sajak as much as i'm i mean brent and i have the ongoing joke of him being so republican that he's like like seething when he has to talk to like people of color and yeah, especially yeah, like yeah. gay people with me but like he is so good at being bland and and yeah. matching the contestants blandness that i don't know if that like it's he he really does strike a certain beige there's a, there's a certain brilliance to his beigeness i think is a good way yes. of putting it now ultimately the question elliot is posing to us is who do we think yeah uh will replace um what's Wait, his well, face who do you, who do you think that? should replace i gotta Sager. respond to the blandness though because like i feel like as a host of a game show you need someone incredibly bland because they can be replaced because that's true yeah don't matter to the show it is the contestants that matter and the blandness of the host is the forgettable factor pat sajak is actually a forgettable factor because he's a joke and you could put any other bland person in there i'm thinking like <laughs> the pyramid show how many fucking hosts did that show have or like oh, that, yeah. that's that yeah you're right and and so you can put another bland fuck in there like a like a Ryan, Ryan Seacrest, Seacrest. who who's, yeah. who's literally is the perfect example of the blandest human being in entertainment. And yet he, he will likely be the he will likely be the replacement because he is just bland enough that he can keep things completely yeah. like you're right. It's like keep that. I guess that's what I meant. To, and Brent, you were talking about that, like brilliance, the brilliance of the blandness and, yeah. and blending in is what makes is what makes him good at his job, good at that job. Whereas mm-hmm. to me, Alex Trebek you know, or Steve Harvey with like Family Feud, they lead the show with personality in a way that to me never steps over the line. But I think Ryan Seacrest will replace him. I do think, I'm going to say it, LeVar Burton would be an excellent host. I, Why? I thought that forever. Because he's just got a certain... Um, Blandness? He, no, like he's able to, he's so, he just comes off so intelligent in a way that Alex Trebek did as well, where you're like, I don't know if he's a, if he's particularly good at Jeopardy, but he seems that way. The yeah, way that Alex Levar Trebek Burton... definitely cultivated that in his interviews. He pretended like he basically knows all of the questions, even though he was a yeah. dumbass from Waterloo in Canada. But uh, <laughs> uh, but Lavar, yeah, you know, I I I actually I hear you. I I think there's like I I I can't help it. I of course love Lavar Lavar Burton as an actor and as the host of Reading Rainbow, mm. uh, and he's also done a good job of cultivating that. You know, being really into literacy and all these things. I just I guess I have this reaction to like whenever there's an opening now on TV, there's like these absurd <laughs> these absurd blogs that will be like. Who should replace them? And, and and instead of the actual famous people who should genuinely maybe replace Pat Sajak, it's just like a laundry list of like, you know, um, you know, a, a, every possible demographic in the country, you know, a lesbian <laughs> Asian woman and, you know, all these things. And you're just like, you're just, you cannot but roll your eyes when you're like, they're not going to hire someone who isn't famous to host Wheel uh, of Fortune. To I don't know, though. I always think back to like who wants to be a millionaire when um, Regis Feldman sort of stopped doing that and they sort of syndicated the show and then Meredith Vieira stepped in and everyone was like Meredith Vieira and she turned she was out great. To be a great game show host. She a was great, great. Game show host because she's sort of the bland equivalent, although she's not fully bland in that she does have a, a humorous personality. She understands humorous moments and when to step in and she knows timing and all of these things. So someone like a Meredith Vieira could easily pop into a wheel of fortune and actually bring some personality to it. What's interesting is that Meredith has an air of like, she's like an intelligent journalist, whereas Regis was more of a, 
showman, you know, a show yeah. business guy. And yet both worked. Like yeah. for me, both. I think both of Drew Carey on Price is Right. He's another great example of someone who like had big shoes yeah. to fill for someone who was pretty bland. And I would not call Drew Carey necessarily bland. And he brought in literally a whole new generation of this show that is not only authentically diverse in terms of like the people who the models that they have and the gender spectrum of models that they have and the openness i mean literally like wayne brady's another one wayne brady could fucking host fortune you know what i mean that's by the way real quick real quick i have a we have a friend actually who used to work um she's actually very successful now but she used to work like the lunch shift near like whatever studio that drew drew carey uh um uh shoots uh uh that fucking show. Price is right. The name. Price is right. Price is right. And she said he would always come in for lunch. And he, you know, of course, he gets a per diem. So he gets like a few hundred dollars or something every day. He would come in for lunch. He would get like a sandwich and he would give them the whole per diem. So he would always tip her yeah. like $200 every time He's he came in. He's incredibly generous. And he is yeah. now, he is doing for the second time in a row, the first, the, the first writer's strike in 2008. He did this as well. He just puts down his card or his t- a tab at a couple of restaurants in LA, diners like Greasy Spoons. And if yeah. you have a WGA card, you can get anything you want and tip is included on Drew Carey. Yeah. Very, very generous. Very That's, sweet. We need more people like that. In Hollywood. We need more Drew Carries. What would your aunt say? Brent, what would your aunt Ramona say about something she heard on today's podcast? I love Meredith Vieira because she's a Republican. <laughs> oh, that's right. She is a Republican. Yeah. Oh, is she? <laughs> yeah. How do you know Yo, that? Well, voted- uh, again, that's like, it, it's like, one of these like whisper, like I've heard it once or twice. No, but... no, no. She said she said she voted. For, I remember she voted for George W. Bush. Yeah. Oh, yeah. did she say that? I'm surprised she would say that as a journalist. Yeah, mm-hmm. I remember she said that. <laughs> but wait, wait. Um, what would Aunt Joanne say, Elliot? Aunt Joanne would say, "I would, I would read any youth. I would read any. I, you know what? I, I fucked it up. <laughs> say it. <laughs> say it. Say it. Say it. No, I would read any book about gay youth as long as they were Jewish." <laughs> 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 what How about, about Aunt Anne? Aunt Anne would say, I'll tell you one book they need to ban. They need to ban the Weight Watchers point book they put out every year. That's what they need. <laughs> I don't I think they do the Aunt book Anne. anymore. I think it's all the app. But Aunt Anne doesn't uh, know that. I yeah, don't it. tell her. Love all right. Well, thanks for listening. Uh, bye bye. Okay. <laughs> bye bye. <laughs> Thank you.